0: Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. To another episode of Vertical Momentum, I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is a different kind of episode. We're going to have um, this uh, young lady that we're going to have on truly touched my heart. Um, And we're going to be talking about a lot of heavy subjects, but a lot of great subjects this is the ultimate story of tragedy and triumph, so I just want to enter, I mean, I want to talk about, introduce, I'm having a brain fart, too much coffee this morning. Uh, miss, She's a Gold Star uh, mother, which is you know, near and dear to my heart, and she's changing the way people think about different things that we're going to talk about today. Jill, how are you doing today?
1: Hey, good morning, Richard. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks oh, for having so, me on.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to have you on. Um I know it's been a while, but um, your sort your story uh, really affected me, um, especially because I'm one of my close friends. His name is uh, Charles Strange. He's a Gold Star father, mm-hmm. and he lost his uh, son on Extortion Seventeen, where they lost a total of thirty. I think thirty one. Um, so it very close to my heart. But I, I love how you've turned it into a positive. So how is your day going and how is your week going?
1: Um, very well, very well. It's it's early. It's only 10 o'clock in the morning, so not a lot can go wrong, right? Yep. <laughs> so far, but you know, I, I keep a positive attitude about life. You won't hear a lot of negative things come out of my mouth. Um, I just returned uh, from being gone for two weeks. I live in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, but I'm from Minnesota, and I had uh, three Uh, Very special events take place while I was uh, in Minnesota, so I stayed up there for the duration and just arrived back to Arkansas on Wednesday night, so I'm getting my bearings straight being back at home again.
0: So, wow, that's a big difference from Minnesota weather in the winter to Arkansas weather in the winter.
1: Well, I can't wait to live in it. Um, I have not um, gone through a winter yet in Arkansas, but I did spend last January here and I'll tell you, I was the only one walking around without a jacket on. Uh, I, I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> the average temperature is 46 degrees um, here in Bentonville for January. And in Minnesota, the Twin Cities where I was, it's more like 18. Wow. So that's, a, that's a significant difference, and I, I, can't, I can't wait to experience it.
0: It was weird. Like when I moved from uh, New Jersey to South Carolina – And it was Christmas morning and I was in shorts and a tank top. I was like, wow, I can still get used to this, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I spent two winters in Florida a few years back as well. And I didn't have any issues enjoying Christmas lights um, without snow. Didn't bother me at all.
0: (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself because you you, you are a many faceted person. It's not just one thing. You know, like a lot of people, they do one thing. Um, You've you're very well versed in a lot of things. So tell us a little bit about you and your background and, um, you know, tell us a little bit about what you who you are,
1: who I am, Um, who am I, who am I and what am I doing here? Right. Yeah. Who am I and what am I doing here? Well, you know my name. I'm Jill Stevenson. I, most notably, I, you know, am referred to as a gold star mother, and I think most of your audience knows what that means. You know what that means. That means that I lost a child to active duty military service, and that's the life I've been living for the last twelve years. Um, my son died twelve years ago, and we'll talk about more in depth um, about his story in a little bit. Uh, I did raise him as a single mom, and he was my only child. So uh, I grew up um, just a very middle-class family in suburban Twin Cities, Both my parents come from there, came from a very large family, so I had a lot of aunts, uncles, and cousins. We were very blessed to spend time at my grandparents' cabin. They had um, a lake home or a cabin uh, about three hours north of where we lived, and we spent a lot of time up there in the summers. And having uh, family time together and just being away from the city is something that became very dear to me because... I spent so much time doing it growing up. I, in turn, introduced my son to that, um, and he came to love it the same way I do it, the same way that I did, having family be important and also spending time in the outdoors and just getting away from the city and enjoying the the quiet life of being on a lake and anything outdoors that you can associate with with that aspect of, of things. Um, in order to make a living, um, I took... Um, the first job that I had after Ben went to school was as a house cleaner and I I actually loved cleaning houses and, but I, I, um, interacted so well with the homeowners that my boss quickly promoted me to the office manager and thought that I was better suited to be in that leadership role. So then I quickly became the manager and then I, um, took jobs after that, um, not necessarily in leadership roles, but, that um, helped refine me to move into leadership positions i was able to you know support ben and move my way up through corporate america if you will um, without a college degree because i believed in myself and i had a child to support so i took all the experiences that i had gained over the years and just applied them to the next thing and i was able to just you know work my way up and up and up and eventually you know i say the, the last like real job i had um, you know, I was a, a vice president um, at Wells Fargo. Um, I worked at U.S. Bank as well in corporate banking. And then uh, I also um, had a job working in management doing uh, workers' comp payments. And I, en- I enjoyed all that. But, I, you know, I, the reason I bring that up is because it helped set the tone um, for Ben, too, to see that you don't have to just take a lump you know what that life hands you—that you can make the best of things by continuing to persevere and believe in yourself, and still be fair competition for what's out there, and not have to miss
0: out on anything like that. Now, one thing I have to say, you know, about that is, you know, um, I grew up a single mo- my, with a single mother. My father hauled ass when I was three months old, mm-hmm. and. Um, unfortunately you know, to have to put a food over our head you know food in our mouth and a roof overhead she had to work her ass off Mm -hmm. so a lot of time was spent alone um you know when one person's trying to do it all yeah it's a lot so but i think one thing like you were saying that ben you instilled in ben was a great work ethic you know because i think that's one of the things that you know anybody that succeeds in life, you know, they say that talent that doesn't work hard gets beat by people that work hard with less talent.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is. Absolutely is true. And I, and I never let the fact that I didn't have a degree stop me from competing for jobs that asked for a degree. And, and, uh, uh, one of those things Ben was able to see, but the another one, um, he wasn't because it happened after he died. But I, I once, um, I applied for a job in the company that I was working for, and it was it was not a lateral move. Actually, it kind of was a lateral move, but the job suggested a law degree. But it was a very niche line of business that I was had been working in, so I was very familiar with the language. And I got the job over a, a gentleman on my floor um, who had a law degree. And uh, that guy never talked to me again after that. He got angry at me and thought that, you know, his degree qualified him over me. And, and it didn't because I was able to not only walk the walk, but talk the talk. And all he could do is walk the walk. And, 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 uh, and I, I pride myself on that because I, I was able to speak the language and it was a significant um, pay increase for me and uh, gave me a greater title, which, you know, uh, uh, enabled me to continue moving forward in what I was doing and to support Ben um, better, you know, financially. So it was, uh, it was a good thing, and, and he, he did see that. Um, he, ben also, you know, grow, in his growing up years, my grandfather, his great-grandfather was his strongest male role model, and he was a World War II veteran. So we know how tough those guys are. You know, he he left home at sixteen. You know, joined the military when he was seventeen and and served for six years honorably and came out of the military and raised a family with six kids and retired. Um, you know, honorably from his position um, working at the post office and then uh, um, bought this cabin in northern Minnesota and shared that with our family through all the years that that Ben knew him and that that Ben grew up and so that ethic was instilled in Ben from when he was very small all the way up until he you know left and subsequently you know died in the military he my grandfather taught him so many things being at the cabin and being outdoors so Ben was the kid that was mowing the lawn he was the kid that was helping grandpa sharpen his tools uh, he was the kid that was cleaning fish when he was 6 years old um, my grandfather literally stuck a uh, a fillet knife in his hand and taught him how to use it when he was six years old. <laughs> and you know that may not have been something that that I would have done on my own. Um, but my grandfather, in his infinite wisdom, said, "You know how's a, how's a kid supposed to learn if you don't allow him to do it? If you don't allow him to try? And and you know what if he cuts himself? Well, then you teach him how to hold the knife better." So <laughs> um, th- those are things that, yeah, that were instilled in Ben and that he, he took with him. And it, that helped shape him into becoming um, uh, an Army Ranger.
0: Okay. So now um, I love, this, you know, your stories. And, you know, I love to get to know, you know, m- about Ben. What was Ben like as a little boy? because, you know, I, I love, I can just picture him the way you, you, you wrote me his bio. I can just picture him just being, you know, like I was just hell bent for leather, always on <laughs> the move, um, always doing something. So talk to us about Little Ben.
1: Yeah, L- Little Ben was exactly as you described, just, you know, hell bent for action. And uh, reverse psychology worked on him. If, if I told him not to do something, he would do it. So then I would tell him to do something. Uh, <laughs> he was always seeking adventure and, you know, I, I helped instill that in him as well. He was very curious, um, very curious, very intuitive, um, very smart, inquisitive, You know, intuitive and inquisitive. And, and so he always was asking questions. He wanted to know, know about things. He was an avid reader. Um, from he actually was able to start reading books um, before he was two. Um, not not reading them cover to cover, but he knew words and and he could repeat things back to me. So he was he was very smart. Um, but playing outside is something that I encouraged and did with him. I didn't want my child to be stuck inside staring at the television and not and not spending that time in the great outdoors like I did growing up. Um, going to the cabin. And as a child, you know, I'm of the age where we played outside until the streetlights came on. I wanted Ben to have those same experiences. So anything we could do, you know, outdoors, playing in the dirt, going fishing, you know, looking for frogs. Um, I pitched balls to him and the neighbor kids. So they, you know, learned how to swing a bat. We threw a football. Um, We rode our bikes. We flew kites. We did all kinds of things like that, you know, went to went to the zoo, you know, went to arboretums and on nature hikes and um, just very, very spontaneous type of outdoorsy things. So Ben came to love those things and and grew into being um, more of a mischievous boy, which he was from the beginning as well. He was he was mischievous. He wanted to touch everything. Um, he wanted to um, just do things his way. He was very independent also from a young age. He was also super cute. Um, he was very, very cute. I don't know a a parent that wouldn't call their, you know, that wouldn't say their child was, wasn't cute, but I used to say to him, you know, you're lucky you're so cute (laughs) when he would get in trouble. (laughs) you Um, it saved him. It saved him on, on, on many occasions, but, um, he was also, um, very much, Um, not a mama's boy, but he appreciated me. You know, we spend a lot of time together, me being a single mom. So he was very attached to me. And we were, we were very, very close, you know, from when
0: he was a little boy. Now, what kind of student was he?
1: Um, Terrible. (laughs) He, He was not, Ben was very smart, but he was not academic. He had social issues in school. And so that that made it difficult for him to uh, achieve, you know, a high level of academia, if you will. But it didn't keep him from going to school, and he still applied himself, and and he was able to obviously pass, um, and got his diploma, which got him to the military. But uh, he had a lot of social issues up until fifth grade, and it, what happened in fifth grade is I moved him from the school district area that we were in 30 miles away. Uh, I did some research on uh, the best school districts in the metropolitan area where we were in in Minneapolis and found um, the school district about 30 miles away that was at the top base of academics, but the teachers were paid the lowest. And so what that told me is that those teachers liked their jobs that they weren't there for the money they were there to teach the kids and so i literally moved you know 30 miles away from my friends and family to give ben a better opportunity and it was one of the best decisions i ever made in my life school yeah. i was going to say school had been really difficult for him up till that time and then once we got to fifth grade it was everything changed
0: so uh, what do you think was that made it so difficult up until that time?
1: Ben was, you know, not unlike me, the uh, square peg trying to fit into a round hole in school. And he, he just, it just didn't, Where he had a different learning style. He did not have, he wasn't dyslexic. He didn't, he was, he didn't have ADHD. He just had a different learning style. He was what you call a spirited child. So he had some, um, he just didn't have the same learning style and the teachers weren't welcoming to that. They wanted him to uh, sit with his, you know, feet flat on the ground and sit up straight his arms on, on the desk. And he really required more of a, a structured environment that allowed him to be himself. And he just wasn't ever able to do that. And once we got to the, to the new school district in fifth grade, um, they were more embracing of who he was as an individual and didn't expect him to just conform and being another member of the class.
0: You know, I love that. Cause you know, when I grew up, um, I had that same issue where, you know, uh, for me, once I learned something, it was like, okay, all right, let's move on to the next day. I'm getting bored already.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: and mm-hmm. that whole ADD thing. I'm like, all right, you know, you, you taught it today. You don't have to teach it for the next week. So I'm just right. going to make airplanes and fly them around
1: the room. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yep. That he been actually learned things quick and, and he, you know, he got a lot of that from me. I'm the same way. I catch on to things very quickly and then I want to just move on and not, not stay back. You know, I, I envision it as if you're walking with somebody side by side and you, have you've got it. So then you, you start walking faster and pretty soon they're way behind you and you turn around. You're like, come on, come on, let's go. Let's go. I've got it. And, and they're not, other people just don't catch on that fast. Some people I shouldn't say not other people I don't mean to generalize but that's that's exactly what it is, is that it's just a, a, a different learning style and a different learning speed.
0: Now his grandfather was uh, obviously was in World War II so that really inspired him. You know he wanted to be mm-hmm. in the military and I know that 9/11 had a big um, impact on him and the funny well not the funny thing, but um, where I'm sitting right now, I'm actually overlooking where the twin towers once stood. And that was a day that changed my life. So how did that change the trajectory of young Ben's thought process?
1: Wow. Well, it, it, uh, it completely, it completely changed his life. Um, I don't know that, you know, I've said that it changed the trajectory, although I don't know the direction he was going, but it definitely zoned it in and, um, It became his true north. 9-11 helped direct that true north to him. So Ben was very close with my grandfather. So it was his great-grandfather. Very, very fortunate that the two of them got to have a relationship for 13 years. Being that I was a single mom and my grandfather was the strongest male role model that Ben knew, he literally worshipped the ground that he walked on and he wanted to grow up and be just like him. He honestly just, he, he just, there was nobody better in this world than great grandpa to Ben. And, uh, he died when Ben was 13 and it absolutely, it just wrecked him. It absolutely wrecked his heart. It was the first death that he had experienced. And he told me that it made him so sad that he didn't want to talk about it. He couldn't talk about it. It just hurt him, it just hurt him so much. So I, I let, I let him be. And it wasn't hard for me to let him be because he was a 13-year-old boy, right? 13-year-old boys don't talk a lot anyway. They kind of just mumble and grumble. So I was, I was okay to give him his space. Well, five months later, 9-11 happened. And then that changed his, his sorrow into anger uh-huh. and instilled a, a strong sense of revenge in Ben. Because 9-11 became personal to him. It was an absolute mockery of his great-grandfather's service to America. He, he thought, how dare you terrorists kill innocent people in my country that my grandfather fought to liberate? And he said, he made a statement in his bedroom at age 13. When I'm old enough, I'm going to join the Army. I'm going to become a ranger. I'm going to find Osama bin Laden. I'm going to make him pay. And I, I never, never looked back from that moment, never looked back from that. And he, he said it with such conviction that there was just no doubt. There was no room for doubt there because of how convicted he was when he made that statement.
0: So obviously, because like my parents had to sign for me uh, when I joined the delayed entry program in the military at 17. So uh, talk to us about the first time you and him walked into a recruiter's office
1: well that that did not happen um, Ben did sign up in the delayed entry program and he was he was going to talk to a recruiter but uh, recruiter found him first he was Ben was working he had a job in high school um, he did the the work program so he went to school for a couple hours in the morning and then left for his job and he was uh, changing tires and changing oil at a local um, station and the recruiter was driving past and saw him out there and said, Hey kid, you ever think about joining the army? And Ben said, as a matter of fact, yeah. So he, he was the guy who, who got the ball rolling for Ben. And uh, I think this was October of his, um, his senior year. So it was in the fall and Ben has a January birthday, making him 18. So Ben told me if I didn't sign the papers for him in October, he'd do it himself in January and uh, I, so I signed him, and I, I I never hesitated to sign them. I I knew that this was the direction he was going to go, and that that day was coming. And and there there it was.
0: What's what what day's Ben's birthday?
1: January twentieth.
0: Okay, mine's the thirtieth. So my twenty oh, okay. fifth. So we're all Aquarius. So yes, we're all, yes good, we're all good people. Then. Um. Now, what year was this? Nineteen and uh,
1: nineteen. Um. Two thousand. Five, 2005, in the fall, because he graduated in 2006.
0: So he um, joins the military. You know, he wants to be a ranger. Now, I have the utmost respect for any kind of um, special operators. I've had a lot of them on the show. And like a lot of them that I've talked to, like your son, they think they learn differently. They think on a whole different plane. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I can some operators, I can tell them they can look at a book and then just automatically go put something together just by just by feel and by look. So special operators, they're different. But one the one trait I find that I really love about special operators, and I'm sure that you have been talked about this, that when he was going through the selection process, a lot of people quit. And a lot of people couldn't handle the selection process. So I think the one thing that all special operators have is that I'm not going to quit attitude. I'm going to die before I quit. Was that something you that Ben ever talked to you about?
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Now that was something, yeah, absolutely. Ben was not a quitter, and in, in anything, he would he would give it his all. It he, he, he always gave it his all. He was not a quitter. And that, again, was something that he learned from my grandfather. You don't quit, you know. Um, you try, and try again. You know, if if at once you don't succeed, try, try again. That's what my grandfather would say. And ben, ben learned that from him. And he he made it known when he was recruited that he wanted a ranger contract. And, you know, the recruiters are, you know, they generally be like, yeah, okay, smarty pants, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well we'll we'll see if how you can do. Well, Ben scored very high on the ASVab test. despite his lack of academia, you know, through high school, he got a very high score. So that made the Rangers instantly interested in him. and so the recruiter was like, okay, well, you know we can we'll see if you can make that happen. Well, Ben did make that happen just seven months, seven months later, after going to basic training, he was assigned to the Third Ranger Battalion uh yeah and through the selection process like you say i believe that there were um, the time ben went i mean the average of those that go through is a, lower than 30% less than 30% of those who actually qualify and finish all the rest quit or just or just qualified okay so
0: 2000 it was 2005 2006 he becomes a, a, a ranger. Now a lot of people that are listening to this um, don't realize that um, when a military person is serving, um, the family is also serving. Mm-hmm. You know They' um, always worried about their whether it's your kids, your spouse. They're always on your mind Any time anything goes, comes on the TV, scrolls across the bottom, parents go into you know and spouses go into that panic mode so talk to us about what it was like serving as a parent well
1: I, I i learned at a young age to have faith in the process to have faith in in life and not get lost in the the tumbleweed of worry the snowball of worry um, Because I lost a brother when I was 15. Uh, He was a and was struck by a car and killed. At the time, I had four living grandparents and a great-grandmother. And I got mad at God. And I thought that my brother died because I was a bad sister. I was was 15, but I had just turned 15 like a month and a half before that. So I was barely 15. I learned at that young age what it means to hold on to your faith and that it's okay to wrestle with God about things that are challenging and in the end he's the one who's 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 going to be there and and never leave you. So when I was raising Ben as a single mom I had that that wisdom with me already at such a such a terribly young age. And that came into play again and came into play favorably for me when I had to Drop my only child off at the airport or actually I didn't even drop him off. The, he went to, um, the recruiter came and picked him up from MEPS, but, uh, knowing that, you know, he was going through, I'll just say going through all the training that he did in the beginning where they're out of pocket, they can't talk to you. Even during basic training, you get a nice letter from the, from the drill instructor saying, you know, I'm your son's new mom. You have to trust me. (laughs) Everything is going to be okay. And we'll let you know that. Um, I I had a a lot of faith building that took place when I had to say goodbye to Ben when he left for the military, because he was my only child I raised as a single mom. He was my 100% focus of my life. I did not focus on me. My life was all about him. And once he left, it wasn't any longer and and that was something that i had to get used to so i i just began praying you know that you know god please take care of of ben i wasn't ever worried about him though because he was so independent he was so independent and so strong that i wasn't worried that he wouldn't he wouldn't survive or that he would quit because it would be too hard nothing was ever too hard for ben but what i came to realize that is that I I also needed God to look after me. That I was I was no longer in charge of Ben, that we both now were were in God's hand. And it was just a, an epiphany to me. And it was a way that I had not seen life before because Ben and I were together all the time. You know, physically we were together. And now and now we weren't. And a lot of people questioned my even allowing him to go into the military because. He was my only child. And I I never questioned that myself because I knew that it was who who Ben was meant to become. I knew that was his life purpose and part of a greater plan because it was born into him at such a young age. And he had such strong conviction and drive to join the military from such a young age that there's just no way I could get in the way of that. So I was not the parent that was glued to the television. I was not the parent that freaked out at every, everything that, you know, I sh- that others may have worried about. I, I really taught myself to breathe and trust that everything was going to work out the way it was meant to. And that worrying didn't help me at all. You know, because going into special operations, there's a lot of training they do where they can't have communication with you. And you don't, not only can you not communicate with them, but you don't know where they are. <laughs> you don't know what they're doing. And so you have to learn to be comfortable in the darkness or in the unknown.
0: So now, um, I know this is hard to talk about, but this is, um, you know, how did you find out about your son's passing? Was it, because I've had people that, that you know, we've lost o- over there. And they found out about it because somebody put a Facebook post on it Mm -hmm. without even telling, you know, letting the families know. So how did you find out about um, Ben's passing?
1: Well, Ben, Ben was not technically killed in action. He is technically a a DOW, which has died of wounds. So Ben was, Ben was shot by a sniper in Afghanistan on his third deployment, but he survived his injuries long enough to get through a surgery, uh, which took place in Afghanistan. I got a phone call from his company commander when I was at work. It was a Friday afternoon, about three o'clock in uh, on the 10th of July in 2009. And I was informed that Ben had been shot by a sniper and that he had undergone surgery and they were waiting for him to wake up. That's that's how it began for me. Um, he eventually ended up at Walter Reed four days after he was shot and then was determined to be brain dead and subsequently removed from life support eight days after he was shot. The, the brain death enabled him to become an organ donor. So on the, on the battlefield that cost him his life, he saved six of his fellow rangers. Upon his death, he's directly saved the lives of four people with the donation of his heart, kidneys, and liver. And he enhanced the lives of 55 more with the donation of his bone, skin, and tissue.
0: So he's still giving, you know, years and years after. So he's still still helping and changing lives. He is. So now um, take us through your your story and your, you know, your mindset, you know, cause they say that, you know, we're never, I have three beautiful children. God's blessed me with, um, but they say, you know, we're never supposed to bury our children. So what was, how were you feeling? What was your, your thoughts and your mindset going through all this the last four days of his life?
1: Well, I, you know, when I met up with him at the hospital, so when Ben, underwent surgery. He essentially never woke up from that surgery. He had a cardiac arrest while he was in recovery. They were able to revive him and stabilize him, but he never woke up. So realistically, he took his last conscious breath in Afghanistan and never never woke up. When he got to Walter Reed, he wasn't conscious. He was in a, a medically induced coma. And that was to protect his condition to keep him stabilized they did determine the day after he arrived that he was brain dead and they told my mother and I that uh, the doctor did one doctor sat us down in a room and told us that. And when he told me that um, I had my, my only moments of anger because my brother 27 years earlier had died from brain death as well. And I thought, uh, my question was, you know, how can God do this to two mothers in the same family? And that's when I, I got angry and and I shouted that. And then I I realized that my mother was sitting right next to me. And I I look and we were literally in in like an oversized chair. So there's enough room for two people to sit in. And so she was right next to me. If I turned my head, you know, her nose is almost touched. And she had tears streaming down her face. And I realized at that moment that this loss wasn't just about me, that there's a lot of other people in this world that love my son and they were going to be missing him as well. We got to spend, I got to spend five days with Ben at Walter Reed. It was, it was five days before I had to walk away and they um, harvested his organs recovered his organs for people that were received for the recipients. He was never conscious, but I got to hold his hand. I got to talk to him. I got to tell him how much I love him and how proud of him I am. And I, I feel incredibly blessed that I got to have, that I got to have that time with him. I'm, I'm not a family member that had to get a knock on the door and or had to go meet a, um, a casket, a flag-draped casket at Dover. And, and I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I wouldn't wish my, my scenario on anybody either. But if I had a choice, you know, I would say that I was more fortunate because I, I got to touch Ben and talk to him and see him. And I, I literally have said this many times, but if, if I live to be 200 – there's no five days that will mean more to me than those. None.
0: Now, was your faith shaken or was it strengthened these five days?
1: It was, it was strengthened. It was strengthened because I knew where Ben was going. I knew where he was going. And I knew that um, I could feel the love around us. I could feel the prayers being said. For us, for him, uh, I could feel the miracles surrounding us that because people were asking for a miracle. I, I knew that, you know the day after Ben arrived at the hospital, I knew that he was brain dead. But the doctors had to are required to perform a specific test that makes the legal declaration that there in fact is no blood flowing to the brain. That piece of equipment is not readily available. And it's um, the patient has to be stabilized in order for them to get the proper reading. So when they told us that they believed he was brain dead just by manual testing, they said they would have to also determine it by this specific test. But it wouldn't be available. They wouldn't be able to do it for a few days. So that bought us time. That bought us time. And in that time period, that four-day window, I never told anybody that until I knew without a doubt that he was in fact brain dead because I did not want the prayers to stop coming. I didn't want people to stop asking for miracles in Ben's name because there's power in that. And I believe in miracles, you know, uh, for someone to wake up from being brain dead is really not possible, but I believe in miracles (laughs) and what in turn took place, then was Ben gave his miracles away. And gave them away to other people.
0: Yeah, you know, and that's what I was just thinking about as you're talking, you know, that as you're sitting there holding your son's hand, that there's other families out there praying for a liver, praying for a heart. Yep. And um, you know, some people's prayers got answered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so um, God ha- God has a way of doing things that some sometimes we don't understand, but sometimes we, we do understand. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, after after the funeral and you know and all that, um, when would when did you make the decision? All right, since he made a big decision, I mean a big um, difference in this world, I want to get this, his story out there, and I want to get to talking to people about. Being, you know, donate, uh, donating, donating, because I'm, I'm am I'm also a donator. Um, so talk to us about how you, all of a sudden, you know, now all of a sudden that, this is your mission in life. And a lot of people say the world will change if we can just have one or two people with a mission. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, it, it wasn't a decision that I made. It was one that I'd, I believe Ben and and God made for me. Um, I did not ever set out to become a speaker, uh, you know, a a public speaker or an advocate for organ donation. It's not that I didn't support it, but Ben's story made that, uh, well, actually delivered that right to me and dropped it in my lap. And because he was an army ranger who was wounded overseas and survived his injuries, made it back to the States and then donated his heart, it became national news. The, the news, the press, was very interested in Ben's story because initially he was wounded. He's back in the States, so people assume that you're back at Walter Reed, that you're going to be okay, and he wasn't. Um, he succumbed to his injuries, however, not before saving other people's lives, including the donation of his heart. The press asked to be present at Ben's funeral at Arlington, so Arlington National Cemetery in, in Virginia there, and the, the press is not allowed at any funeral at Arlington unless the family gives the okay. And, and even then, they are cordoned off at a specific distance. You know, they have to respect the privacy. But they were there. And, uh, and Ben's story, the day after he was laid to rest at Arlington, was on the cover of the Washington Post. So what that did is it immediately thrust me into the spotlight. Everybody wanted to know the story about the Army Ranger who saved someone by donating his heart. He not only saved his brothers on the battlefield, he saved lives upon his death. I was asked, while I was still in Washington, D.C. area for Ben's funeral, I got a call after the Washington Post story um, was printed to do um, national news shows in New York. And I did three of them. Yeah. And they, they flew me up there. I flew up there by myself and did three stories there. And that was um, pretty amazing at that time. You know, I was still just talking one-on-one to people. I wasn't ever standing in front of an audience, even though I had a national news audience, as you know, you don't see the audience, you're speaking to one person. That was pretty, you know, amazing. And then I, you know, coming back to Minnesota, um, you know, back home, I had, you know, people reaching out to me again for news and radio interviews, but the, the organization that takes care of the families with um, organ donation and for the recipients and the donors is um, in DC, they're called WRTC, the Washington Regional Transplant Community. They had contacted me, my the, the advocate, the woman that I had been working with, and asked if I would speak at a national symposium they had coming up in Dallas. And at that time, it would have been um, only six weeks after Ben passed. And they wanted me to grace the stage with Ben's heart recipient. And I agreed to do that. It was my first public speech, and there was 1,100 people in the audience, Judy, uh, who's Ben's heart recipient, and I sat together, and we each had about really only five minutes, not a short, not a long period of time to tell our story. But when we were done speaking, we got a standing ovation. And when I was reading um, my speech, I felt a sense of spirit, strength of spirit come over me. I wasn't nervous. I didn't break down. I was able to stay poised and and not lose it on stage. And a number of people came up to me afterwards and, and said, how did you just do that? How did you just get through that? And it was at that moment that I realized how much power there was in Ben's story. And I had, because I had seen it now physically with 1,100 people standing up and clapping for this story and encouraging me and supporting me and then coming to me afterwards. And it, it really just took off from there. I, like I said, it's not something that I ever saw. It found me, it landed in my lap and I took, I took to it naturally. And I, I believe to this day that it's a gift that God and Ben gave me that it's almost as if um, he handed the baton off to me. Okay, mom, now it's your turn (laughs) to, to tell the story, but we're, we're going to do it. I'm up there. You're down here. We're still going to do this together. And so I I've been continuing that for the last 12 years.
0: Okay. So um, talk to, you know, let us, give us your quick, you know, your, your 10 minute, Spiel, you know, because a lot of people, you know, they don't when they come on the show. The the host is always talking over them and all that stuff. Um, I want to, you know, that's why I love listening to TED Talks because somebody's just giving their complete and thought, total thought process. So, if you wouldn't mind, if you were standing up, because this is going to be listened by thousands, possibly millions of people, please let us talk to us about why. Own, uh donations um for what good it comes and what you've seen from it and obviously the great stuff you've seen so here is your stage talk to us and uh, let us know wh- why we should do what y- you do
1: i i learned from a very young age how to find the light in a dark situation I learned how to how to look for the light in a dark situation when I, I learned how to accept things and to keep going. To just keep going in life, even though you get knocked down, you gotta keep going. Adversity is going to visit all of us in one way, shape or form. It doesn't have to come in the form of the death of a child. It can come the death of, of a spouse or a parent or a sibling it can come in illness and injury and financial loss and divorce and accidents and you know all, all kinds of things fires all, all, all kinds of things that that we don't have control over but we know that they're, it's going to visit us at some point. What I learned from my brother's death is to focus on, the fact that he lived, not the fact that he died. And what are the gifts that I got to enjoy from him as a human and being my little brother. And that's, that's what I focused on. And I took that with me and he was also my connection to heaven. I learned what heaven was like because of my brother, because he lived, not because he died. I had a lot of dreams about my brother when he was not long after he passed away. And I know he was visiting me in my dreams. It was very beautiful, poignant, just brilliant experiences that I had in my dreams with him present. We never exchanged words in our dreams, but there was a, a language that was unspoken between us that was beyond what, what words can even describe. So I had that instilled in me from when I was very young. As I mentioned, I just turned 15 when my brother died and he was 11. I gave birth to my son, Ben, only four and a half years later. I had Ben at age 20, a very young mom. Losing my brother made me love my baby more, made me want to be a better mom because I knew how precious life was. My brother was an organ donor. In 1982 is when he passed. He was was brain dead as well. And the doctors asked my family if we would be willing to donate his organs. And my parents and my sisters and I all agreed that had he been able to make that decision himself, he, he would. So we donated his kidneys and his eyes. Now, that was all that, that they were recovering from people in 1982. In fact, in Minnesota, where I lived at the time, they considered my family to be pioneers in the organ donation world. Because no one, they would just, was just beginning. In fact, the records of my brother's donations don't exist. They're, uh, I've tried to find them and even had a doctor work with me on finding them and they just can't find them. Anyway, uh, I spoke to Ben in his growing up years about my brother's story and organ donation. So Ben was aware of that. Ben was aware of the importance of that. When Ben was filling out his, living will which the rangers do prior to each deployment and the living will is a series of questions i think we all know what that term is but if you unpack it a little bit what's in a living will you have opportunity to make known what your final wishes are where do you want to be laid to rest where do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? Do you, what kind of music do you want to have played? What songs do you want to have played? Who do you want to speak? Who are your pallbearers? What kind of flowers do you want? Et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you follow me on that. One of the questions that was asked, um, Ben's forum asked in the event of your death, do you wish to donate your organs? And Ben wrote, yes. Question that followed asked, which ones? And Ben wrote in, any that are needed. So Ben took to heart, literally, the conversations that we'd had about donating or, and he made good on on that promise upon his death. And I agreed to it. We found that document because Ben was 21. That decision was up to him, not me, had he made those wishes known, and, and he did. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, um Ben chose I believe to give away the miracles that were being asked for in his name. When a a loved one and I've not been on this side of the situation and I, you know, God help me that I never am, when you have a loved one who's dying and their only means to survival is to receive a, an organ, somebody has to die in order for that organ to be received. Unless, you know, you can donate a kidney, but, you know, if they're on their deathbed, you you know what I'm saying here. The only thing that's going to save them is for someone to die and give them their heart, their liver, both kidneys, whatever, lungs, whatever that may be. To answer somebody's prayers, to answer another person's prayers, to me, is the greatest gift that we can give to anybody because it has the most power. Personally, if I could go around answering people's prayers all day, wow, you know, life, life would be so just incredibly copacetic every day, like I would be walking on air. That's the greatest gift, because when people are praying for something, there's generally a really strong need and, and maybe a sense of what we might call aspiration. So what I was able to do upon Ben's death is, is to give life back to other people. Ben was able to give life directly, give life to people he would never know, to strangers. That to me is one of the most selfless acts that we can
0: perform. So how does a person, um, do they, cause a lot of people, you know, don't really think about it until, in your situation or, or a situation like somebody gets a car crash, a heart attack, and, you know, it, it might be, you know, a little bit too late in the game. So um, does a person have to sign up with that ahead of time, or can they do that at a hospital? Well, you, you really should register ahead of
1: time. There's a, there's a national um, registration. If you go to donatelife.org, all one word, donatelife.org. You can sign up there or register yourself as a donor. You can also check the box when you renew your driver's license that you want to be a donor. And you can also put it in your, your final wishes. You know, a lot of people have living wills on hand or final, wish, final wishes in a, in a signed documentation. You can make it known in there. Having it come down to being in the hospital is something I I think is, is avoidable. I believe that we all should have the conversation with our loved ones as to how we feel about organ donation before we find ourselves in that situation. Because if you don't know how your loved one feels, the likelihood is that you're not going to agree to it because people are, are uninformed about what organ donation looks like, and what it might feel like. There's, there's numerous misconceptions or fallacies about organ donation. Um, one, one of the biggest ones being that your body can't be viewed if you've donated your organs, and that's not true at all. That's not true at all. Your body can be viewed. If you donate your organs, <laughs> it, it doesn't um, disfigure to the point where it can't be. Um, it's, it's done with care. It's done with care. People have their own reasons and I'm not going to speculate on what those are. There's a lot of information available out there on the donate life websites. Um, they have a, a national and then there's individual or each state and regions have their own um, organization as well that works underneath the umbrella of the national. So you can find that in your state as well. If you just went to donate life, New Jersey, you would find something. I I don't, I don't know what, what they, they, they sometimes are called something different. As I mentioned in the suburban, in the DC area, it's called WRTC, Washington regional transplant community. So, what I found, though, you know, let's talk about the benefits of organ donation going beyond saving a life. I mean, does it get any greater than that? The effect is is infinite. The gentleman that received my son's liver has grandchildren. Those children wouldn't know their grandfather if it wasn't for Ben. One of the gentlemen that um, Ben, uh, he donated, he, he got one of Ben's kidneys. He's a, a sibling. He has five siblings. Yeah. He, uh, he also has down syndrome. He may not have lived that long. He wouldn't be a part of his family. 12 years later now had Ben not donated that kidney. There's the woman who received Ben's heart would have died had she not received Ben's heart. She was unmarried with no children, but she still is contributing. She's still alive and well 12 years later. The, 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 the benefits just go on and on because those families and those people are telling people about their story, and they're influencing people to sign up and become donors themselves. So it, it's an infinite affection that goes on from that at the uh, United network for organ sharing, which is the national, it's actually a a national database for organs where everything takes place behind the scenes is located in Richmond, Virginia. And they have a, a garden that has a water feature in dedication to all the organ donors that have come through just by, by name and that the water feature starts with one drip uh, off a faucet and goes into a, a bowl, which then spills into a pool area, like a garden sized pool, which then becomes the main source of water that sustains the entire garden. And it starts with one one drip. It's that ripple effect that you see when you skip a stone across the water. It's that ripple effect.
0: I love it. So now uh, last question, how do we find you? How can we get in touch with you and how can we support your mission to carry on Ben's legacy?
1: Well, I have a website that is iamjillstevenson.com it's i a m j i l l s t e p h e n s o n .com you can find out uh, a lot more about me um, i am a motivational speaker i'm available to speak at public events i talk more than just about ben's story uh, i can i can weave it into leadership i can weave it into overcoming adversity which which really is the foundation of, of my speeches is overcoming adversity and finding the light in dark situations because I, I believe there is light in, in every situation uh, I have spoken to audiences around the country I've literally traveled around the. US uh, in the last 12 years and I've spoken to schools, uh, colleges, hospitals, military um, installations, groups as small as six people, groups as large as 10,000 people. Uh, it's, there's really no limit to it. Many church organizations, um, corporate events, many times around Memorial Day or Veterans Day, you know, the common holidays associated with our veterans. So you can find that um, on my website. There's also a book that was written about Ben's life. It's called Heart of a Ranger. That can be found either on my website or on Amazon, and that is the biography of Ben's life. It was not written by me; I I collaborated with the author.
0: I love it. Um. So now, normally that's the end of the interview, but because certain people, I ask one last question. Um, because for me, um, I believe you know that we can make uh, we can help people. So um, you're definitely a woman of faith. Um, I'm I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe he's my Lord and Savior, even though I fail him every day. But if there's somebody out there right now that is struggling with their faith, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start feeling closer to him?
1: Talk to him and trust him and learn more about his story and what he gave up for us, you know, what he gave up for us. He was, he was here for only 33 years and it, it walked in, in the word for three of those years and just know what that is no greater love than, than what he gave up for us because he loves us and his, loving us and sacrificing for us gives us eternal life and just just be rooted in the hope of what that looks like that has helped me more than anything else in the last 12 years and in the last you know, the years since my brother passed in 1982 knowing that i have the hope of heaven waiting for me Is what what keeps me going every day. And that gift came directly from my Lord and Savior. It's a gift he gave us all as eternal life. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. See the hope in him because it's there.
0: I love it. So, guys, if you're listening to this, if it touched you as much as it touched me, make sure that you follow us. Make sure that you um, share this episode because somebody out there needs to hear this today. Somebody out there is going through the same exact thing, and they need to hear this today. Leave a comment. Just let let us know how we're doing, and if we can answer any questions, I'm sure that Jill and I can both get back to you if you have any questions about the the donating process. Jill, thank you so much for coming on. Um, You're truly a great individual, and you're a blessing to this world, and I hope I did you and your son justice today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Richard. I appreciate it.
0: All right, God bless you and the family. Have an amazing weekend. You as well. Take care. Hey, guys, it's me, the Comeback Coach. Guys, I just want to tell you about a person in my life that is truly, truly amazing, and she's actually changing the world one house, one home at a time. Her name is Tammy Moses the Hoarding Solution. She's the founder and chief encouragement officer of Homes Are For Living, the Hoarding Solution, which is a veteran-owned and operated business. Tammy provides virtual consultations and workshops on the issues of hoarding. She believes in inspiring others to take their adversity and use it for the greater good. She is the voice of AKOPTH adult kids of parents that hoard she is also a voice and advocate for our of for y-l-i-t-h youths living in the hoard you can connect with tammy at homes are for living at gmail.com and on facebook at instagram at the hoarding solution so guys if you know anybody that's struggling with any kind of hoarding issue please reach out to tammy She has a heart of service, and she truly cares about people. All right, guys, remember Vertical Momentum. The only way to go is but up. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. We have a brand-new T-shirt line that's coming out, hats, coffee mugs, Any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee, and and it will will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out, leave us a note, tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much For always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.